Welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's everything from a 20th all the way to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. We're thick in the heat of summertime, and that's an ideal time to travel up the steamy jungle river in search of the heart of darkness and revisit Apocalypse Now, which celebrates a 40th anniversary this month. Like any good birthday party, Cineversary invites special guests to join in the celebration. So in this episode, I welcome Jason Henderson, co-host of the Castle of Horror podcast and author of several different adventure and horror books, including the Young Captain Nemo series and Alex Van Helsing series. Together, we'll explore why the film is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from Apocalypse Now today, how it has stood the test of time, and more. First things first, however, how about opening the not-so-confidential file on Apocalypse Now for some context, compliments of Wikipedia. Apocalypse Now is a 1979 American epic war film about the Vietnam War, directed, produced, and co-written by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, Frederick Forrest, Albert Hall, Sam Bottoms, Lawrence Fishburne, and Dennis Hopper. The screenplay, co-written by Coppola and John Milius, and narration written by Michael Herr, was loosely based on the 1899 novella Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. The setting was changed from late 19th century Congo to the Vietnam War, spanning 1969-70 in this story, and the film follows a river journey from South Vietnam into Cambodia undertaken by Captain Benjamin L. Willard, a character based on Conrad's Marlowe and played by Martin Sheen, who is on a secret mission to assassinate Colonel Kurtz, played by Brando, with the character being based on Conrad's Mr. Kurtz, a renegade Army Special Forces officer accused of murder and who is presumed insane. Milius became interested in developing Heart of Darkness into a Vietnam War film. Coppola expressed interest and eventually decided to take on the project, with the filmmaker taking influence from Werner Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God, released in 1972. Initially set to be a five-month shoot, the film became noted for the problems encountered while making it for over a year, as chronicled in the documentary Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, released in 1991. These problems included Brando arriving on the set overweight and completely unprepared, expensive sets being destroyed by severe weather, and Sheen having a breakdown and suffering a near-fatal heart attack while on location. Problems continued after production as the release was postponed several times while Coppola edited over a million feet of film. Apocalypse Now was honored with the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, where it premiered unfinished before it was finally released on August 15, 1979, by United Artists. The film performed well at the box office, grossing $78 million domestically and going on to gross over $150 million worldwide. Not bad for an original budget of $31 million. Initial reviews, however, were mixed. While Vittorio Storaro's cinematography was widely acclaimed, several critics found Coppola's handling of the story's major themes to be anticlimactic and intellectually disappointing. Apocalypse Now is today considered to be one of the greatest films ever made. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards at the 52nd Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor for Duvall, and went on to win for Best Cinematography and Best Sound. It ranked number 14 in Sight and Sound's Greatest Films poll in 2012, and ranked number 6 in the Director's Poll of Greatest Films of All Time. Roger Ebert also included it in his top 10 list of greatest films ever in 2012. It currently garners a 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and an average critical ranking there of 8.91 out of 10. 
In 2000, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In 2001, Coppola released Apocalypse Now Redux in cinemas and subsequently on DVD. This is an extended version that restores 49 minutes of scenes cut from the original film. More recently, in April of this year, 2019, Coppola showed Apocalypse Now Final Cut for the 40th anniversary screening at the Tribeca Film Festival. Now, this new version has a runtime of three hours and two minutes, with Coppola having cut 20 minutes of the added material from Redux. Feast your ears for a moment on the original trailer for the theatrical cut. This is the end, beautiful friend. I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins, they gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. My orders say I'm not supposed to know where I'm taking this boat, so I don't. But one look at you and I know it's going to be hot. Pick your boat up and put it down like a baby, right where you want it. This is the first of the night. Air calves, son. We'll come in low out of the rising sun, and about a mile out, we'll put on the music. It scares the hell out of the slopes. My boys love it. Smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like victory. Man, this is better than Disneyland. and we gotta go up there so you can kill one of our own guys? They're all dead, stupid. Who's the commanding officer here? And you? He was close. He was real close. I couldn't see him, but I could feel him. These are all his children, man, as far as you can see. They think you've come to, uh, to take him away, and I hope that isn't true. Could we uh, talk to Colonel Kurtz? You don't talk to the Colonel. Uh, well, will you listen to him? Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks. To collect the bill. Prior to proceeding with my interview with Jason, just a heads up. Spoilers ahead, so if you've not already viewed Apocalypse Now, why don't you give it a watch and come back to this spot in the podcast. Did everyone return? Okay, it's time to introduce author and fellow podcaster Jason Henderson. Jason, welcome to Cineversary. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join me today to talk all things Apocalypse Now. 
Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk about this, especially because I love your concept. I love this idea of attacking films at times where we can think about them in context and, and uh, you know, by their anniversary, what's coming up next. It, that's, that's wonderful. So, no, I, I'm, I'm honored that you would ask. Oh, thank you so much. And the, the pleasure is, is mutual. I, I've always enjoyed your podcast, Castle of Horror. We could talk about that a little bit later if you want to go into more description about it. But let's get into the film at hand. So when and where did you first see Apocalypse Now? Can you recall? Yes. Uh, Apocalypse Now, I know that I came across portions of it back in the 80s, uh, probably in the context of watching uh, Full Metal Jacket when it came mm. out. But uh, And at that point, Apocalypse Now would have been a uh, little less than, than what's the year for Apocalypse Now is 79. So it would have been a little less than 10 years old. And, and just think about that in context. This is 2019. So think about like a movie that came out in 2009. It would have been a fairly recent film, right? And, uh, but I didn't pay much attention to it. I, I think I watched it uh, like actually giving it its due probably in college. So five or six right. years after that. And, uh, you know, I may have caught some some uh, theatrical thing. So, mm. you know, I, I've, I've only seen the theatrical versions. I think this movie, it is not one of my all-time favorite films. A lot of my all-time favorite films are films that are not even all that well-respected and maybe don't even deserve to be, but there will be something that just I hold mm. in my head, you know. And, uh, but the funny thing is, in Apocalypse Now, there's always been an image that I've thought about many times whenever I've written a book, because I write books, right? So sometimes I'll write a book where the character passes through a uh, some transom and and mm. leaves behind a bunch of characters and mm. it has always struck me the thing that pops into my head many many times a year is the moment in apocalypse now when willard uh, and and his boat uh, are briefly at the bridge and are involved in the firefight there. Well, they're not even involved in the firefight. They're just sort of wandering through it like it's the Pirates of the by the Caribbean. And, and, you know, you have the guy using the rocket launcher to kill the unseen Vietnamese soldier. And it's craziness there. And then they break loose and they just keep going upriver. And that happens twice in this film. I think about that all the time. That, that moment of of transition of leaving behind some episode that you were in and you are going on into darkness uh that's uh it, this movie's really good at transitions uh and it would need to be because it's ridiculously long so you know I, that's and that's just my that's purely my opinion is it important to me i think it's an important movie and i think about it often it's uh it's really strange and definitely worth uh, worth discussing yeah, for my take, uh, I remember seeing an edited version for television in mm. the 1980s, but it was chopped up, and I don't think I sat through the whole thing. I was pretty young at the time. So I didn't really see it in its entirety, uh, the theatrical cut, until maybe the early 90s on VHS or something like that. And it, it didn't really register or resonate for me until probably the DVD age, like the early 2000s, when I think I bought my own copy for the first time and watched it mm. a few times through. And boy, it really sank in. And uh, in terms of it mattering to me, absolutely. It is, I think, in my opinion, uh, the greatest war movie ever made. I mean, there's a lot of contenders to that, that really? title. But it, it holds a special place for me. It's definitely my top 20 all-time uh, films. And um, yeah, I even like the extended version. I'm curious to see the final cut, which is actually in theaters now and coming to home video and things like that. So this movie does hold a special place in my heart. We just recently discussed it at my weekly film discussion group called Cineverse. Mm. And uh, yeah, the, the reaction was a little bit mixed, as I would have expected. It is a difficult film. It is long. It can be disturbing, etc. But it just continues to uh, yeah, rank high in stature for me. So why is Apocalypse Now worth celebrating all these years later? Why does it still matter? And Jason, how has it stood the test of time? First of all, it definitely stands the test of time because it's an extremely well-made movie. Uh, I don't know precisely what the film's message about war is because I think it is, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of conflicting messaging going on, and I think that's true in a lot of the best works so there's a lot of opportunity for us to discuss like what the hell is this movie trying to say other than mm. that war is hell so i don't know what the message of the film is but it's very well made i mean every the the, the special effects are good the tension is good in the firefights 
the the performances are all fantastic. There's nobody giving a bad performance. You know, right. there's nobody there's nobody phoning it in. And it has in Colonel Kurtz a just truly bonkers performance that uh, you know is very well delivered. That it, you know it reminds you of why Marlon Brando was worth the money that he was worth. Yeah, million dollars a week, right? <laughs> yeah, uh... and 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 well worth it. Uh, you know, uh, people spend a lot of time kind of kvetching about his his weight, uh, which is so funny because. It's just not relevant with, with with Marlon Brando. He is, or or if it is relevant, it only makes him more just unusual and inhuman. You know, he he's he's just he's a big sumo wrestler of a guy, and he seems to be a different race than everybody around him. You know, it, it's he's uh, he's odd. It, it's it's wonderful. So. Great performances, looks great, it's lush, it's well filmed, you know, there's there's just nothing technically wrong with it. Again, other than the fact that I feel like it should be about half as long. But I don't know what I would cut. Okay. Yeah, appreciate the honesty there and the perspective. So for me, Apocalypse Now Matters because it's an uncompromisingly bleak vision by a master filmmaker, a guy who put out arguably four masterworks in the 1970s, and mm. he wrote the screenplay to Patton, and he, uh, I, I believe, produced American Graffiti. Think about his work in the 70s alone. He should be enshrined on the, the Mount Rushmore of film just for that decade. So uh, it's a depiction of war, particularly the Vietnam War, that doesn't pull any punches. Mm. It can be visceral, gritty, disturbingly authentic, as well as poetic, artistic, wildly exaggerative and over the top and and formalistic. So it could be kind of both of these things. Mm. I think it's also worth celebrating because this is bravura filmmaking at its most daring and creative. Mm. There are no CGI pyrotechnics dazzling us here. Those are real helicopters. Those are real explosions. That's a live animal that gets slaughtered. That's a real river they're filming on. Those actors truly are sweating and toiling and expressing fear and anguish. So the effort and struggle that went into this movie is right up there for everyone to see and to admire. And you may not like the story. You may think it's a bit long. Uh, You may not care for some of the characters or the dark tone. But you can't help but be absolutely awe-inspired by the incredible sets, the battle choreography, the spot-on editing, the jaw-dropping sound design by Walter Murch, one of the best in the business, and above all, to me, the breathtaking visuals achieved by one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, Vittorio Storaro. Mm. So Storaro and Merch each deservedly won Academy Awards for their work on this picture, and I think it really stands out there. I believe it's also stood the test of time because it remains arguably the greatest war film ever made. So the Vietnam War may be long gone, but it's still deeply burrowed in our sociocultural consciousness, in no small part due to the power of this movie. If you think about it, it created iconic and indelible images in our minds yeah. that we continue to associate with that war, right, Jason? Yes. So, so when when people think of the American conflict in Vietnam, many conjure up you know images from Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Yes, pl- platoon may be more authentic and true to you know the grunts' experiences. The the deer hunter coming home, which preceded this film by a year. They, they're more concerned with how everyday lives were affected before and after the war. And then you mentioned Full Metal Jacket, which, which of course, has to be considered here. But it's a very stylized and bifurcated film that yes. wasn't necessarily making a statement about the Vietnam War. Apocalypse Now serves as both a movie of its time, when the wounds were still fresh just a few years after America got out. Yes. That expresses how horrific that conflict was as well as being a timeless movie about the insanity of war, any war. Vietnam haunts uh, everything post-Saigon. So, like, this movie, but get this. This movie comes out just four years after we left Saigon. Four years. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's mind-blowing. Jason, he was actually in the jungle, in the Philippines, making it in 76. Wow. That blows my mind. That is That is just remarkable. By the way, the screenplay uh, co-written by John Milius, I mean, he that was drafted originally in 69. So they, they were going to go in the field during the Vietnam War, not necessarily shooting in Vietnam. But George Lucas, part of their team of Zoetrope, was originally slated as the director. They were going to shoot it on 16 millimeter in the early 70s or mid-70s. So they actually had plans to be 
filming this while the war was still going on. When I say earlier that, that I feel like the movie's too long, but I don't know what I would cut, a lot of that has to do just with when you get down to it, this movie still basically has a very straightforward plot. It, it is it is extremely straightforward, more straightforward than a typical war film. You know, this isn't the big red one, right, where you're just wandering around the war. I mean, the main character is not even, he's regular army, but not really. He's actually an assassin. You know, he's a straight up assassin. That's what we learn about him. He's a lone gunman uh, who is employed by the United States government to kill people. And he's got an assignment to kill someone. And that's what the movie's about. I think it also matters because it's a film that probably could no longer be made today. It's a big budget, high stakes, guerrilla filmmaking adventure in which one man, Francis Ford Coppola, had to literally risk everything, put up his house, his his, his uh, assets, and try to achieve his vision. It's doubtful that any major studio would greenlight a production like this in the present time, a movie that demands to be shot on location in dangerous conditions using practical effects mm. and where too many uncertain variables could cause the whole thing to come crashing down. And I don't know if you got a chance to see the absolutely riveting documentary made by his wife and some filmmakers called Hearts of Darkness. Of course it's I one do. of the greatest. Oh, it's just, we watched it again in our film group, uh, just post uh, the theatrical version. And um, it's just amazing. It really puts it into context, everything that was at stake. I mean, he has, has to deal with a typhoon. Uh, Martin Sheen gets a heart attack. Brando comes in overweight and doesn't know his lines and is being difficult and a million dollars a week and all these different things go wrong. And yet, this is what came out of it, and it's just amazing. So interestingly, you know, you were asking about, like, what comment is this making on the Vietnam War and so forth? And we'll, we'll probably get into that a bit more in just a bit. But I think that Apocalypse Now can be seen as both an anti-war film and one that can serve to glorify and possibly romanticize combat. It straddles that line, and it doesn't seem to take a stand either way, and it kind of lets the viewer come to their own conclusions. Mm. So... Jason, in what ways do you think Apocalypse Now was influential on cinema and popular culture or set trends? This oh, could be kind God. of fun here to dig into. Yeah. <laughs> this movie, I think this movie has affected pop culture more than uh, people. It, it's one of those wonderful films where it's affected movie makers a great deal. So it's had an effect on culture that goes far beyond uh, how many people actually watch the movie. Remember, the end by the Doors was not a was was not a hit song. That was a that was an album track that was on their their eponymous first album. Uh, it was not released as a single. But Coppola makes the Doors this indelible piece of madness filmmaking, and so and ever since then, people have used this Doors song to as as a shorthand but jason let's let's stop there for one second think about this it's not just the door song which i think is so perfectly fitting for when he when he uses it and why he uses it yeah but this is also the movie that gave war movies a rock and roll soundtrack so think about this yeah today when the vietnam war is depicted in a film one or more scenes almost always feature what classic rock songs credence clearwater revival yeah yeah yeah. yeah, songs that were endemic to that period. So I can't think of a combat film before Apocalypse Now that features rock and roll. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, the two movies that really kind of break that barrier for introducing uh, rock and pop music is, are, of course, The Graduate mm-hmm. and Easy Rider. But those aren't necessarily Vietnam movies. Not at all, they're, no. they're talking about the, the counterculture. But but this is, re- as, as a war movie, I don't think this had been done before. And this is no small point because it's really the vernacular. It's it's really the musical vernacular of the time. Yes. So we're not, It's this isn't some John Wayne, you know, combat film from the 50s or something like that where you have you know, these stirring strings and uh, bombastic orchestra. This is an important point of um, underscoring uh, the conflict. Yeah, it's diegetic music that the people in the film are actually likely to listen to. And since the people in the film tend to be uh, teenagers and 20-somethings, except for Willard, who's an old man at 36, uh, you know, everybody's listening to music they would be listening to at home. Totally. I mean, Larry Fishburne is is this strapping green bean of a of a 14 year old you know right. who is masquerading as a 17 year old here he's a kid he would be listening to whatever and uh 
you know, they'd, so be listening to what kids would be listening to in, in the late sixties and God bless the ride of the Valkyries. How many times are people going to rip that off? So think about this. I, I, I was reading this and I can't quote it from memory, but the U S military uses that song or did, I, I believe it was in the two thousands. It might've been uh, some Iraqi operation or something mm. where they use that song to inspire their troops before, you know, you know, taking off in flight or something like that. So the point is it's become, become so co-opted uh, and even in a, a, a kind of maybe, you know, if, if Coppola meant it to make a statement anti-war, I don't know if that's true. It, it's even kind of a pro-war statement if you want to look at it that way. There's tremendous irony in that scene. Yeah. Supposedly, hey, let's blast Wagner uh, so it'll frighten the people that we're going up against. I, I find it unlikely that you'd be able to hear them over the rotors of like seven or eight helicopters. But whatever, it doesn't even matter. The, in, the, in the magic of the movie, we're blasting Wagner and... We're blowing up a bunch of women and children. Like- but let's let's take that further, though. Let's take it even further than the song. Consider yeah. how iconic and memorable that whole helicopter sequence is, as well as Robert Duvall's I Love the Smell of Napalm in the Morning quote <laughs> has become. I mean, we've seen this spoofed and recreated in countless movies and TV shows. Small Soldiers, The Simpsons, Family Guy, Rango. Yeah, no, Jarhead. I watched a YouTube video that goes on for several minutes just giving little tiny clips uh, of... of you know the homage the spoof. Oh, it's so tiresome so, isn't it i mean isn't it isn't it just tiresome when you see somebody grab for the obvious joke i i, I agree that it becomes overdone but it says a lot about the impact of this movie right True. i mean just, just that helicopter sequence and the music and that quote alone has carried this movie on to infinity so what else stands out as influential on pop culture or cinema? It introduced, I think, to the pop culture a lot of this sort of army CIA doublespeak that people were certainly familiar with from from watching the news and the Johnson administration, where delightful uses of the language, and I'm not being sarcastic, it's sort of remarkable, uses of the language like, oh, that explanation I gave you yesterday is no longer operative, which is a hilarious way of saying, <laughs> yesterday I lied. Uh, that you know that kind of doublespeak hadn't quite made it into movies yet. So here you you hear it. Mm-hmm. The characters are even hilarious, but with one another. When they go, well, did you ki- did you do this assassination? He's like, nope, absolutely not. Did you do this assassination? Nope. Everybody knows that he's lying. Even he's not any good at saying it's because it's so absurd. I think that's stuck stuck around. The doublespeak, yeah, yeah. How about uh, the fact that this is probably the most graphically violent and distressing war movie made up to that time. Mm. So again, we mentioned The Deer Hunter, 78. Yeah. Yeah. It has the Russian roulette sequence, which, of course, is is still disturbing. Harrowing, yeah. Yep. Uh, that technically isn't a combat scene. Uh, Apocalypse Now paved the way for more realism, more intense brutality, and more morally disturbing scenes and situations in war pictures to follow. Uh-huh. So... Think also that, you know, the high production values, the massive set pieces, the epic scope of the film, they all raised the bar. Yes. They inspired many subsequent war movies to also amp up their visuals and effects. You think of, like, Saving Private Ryan. I don't personally know if Spielberg was inspired by Apocalypse Now, but he had to have been thinking, for example, of the helicopter sequence, and, God, I've got to at least outdo that. I'm sure that this movie inspired other filmmakers to kind of raise the bar when they're you know, d- delivering combat. It's graphic, but we've all seen more graphic. Well, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is um, I think if you don't have uh, Martin Sheen emerging from the mud in this movie uh, like like a salamander, I don't think that you would have had uh, Rambo doing it in in First Blood and Rambo Good point. Part two. <laughs> right. That iconic image emerging from the river with the war paint all over him. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I, th- I think it, it's, and I think that Rambo is the one kind of slip and slides it into everything because everybody definitely starts ripping off Rambo. But I think that that movie was definitely going here. And, and that's what I mean about how this movie influences filmmakers. Uh, yeah. Speaking of pop culture, when Coppola says, oh, yeah, this is based on Heart of Darkness, I always find it fascinating when, when a movie is, quote-unquote, based on something versus not based on something. I mean, think about how many mm-hmm. movies are really essentially rewrites of The Searchers by Alan LeMay, 
<laughs> and versus how many movies are literally an adaptation of something that has nothing to do with it. So, so mm. for instance, I don't, I'm not saying it's wrong to say that this is based on Heart of Darkness. I mean, I guess, sure it is, you know, in the same sense that Moonraker is based on Moonraker, you know, or that, that The Warriors is based on Thanatopsis. Or I Walk with a Zombie is based on Jane Eyre. Or right. Something like that, right. This, yeah. is, this is no more related to Heart of Darkness than I Walked with a Zombie is to Jane Eyre. You know, right. with the extra thing that there's a character name in there, Kurtz. But Milius, from what I understand, and I'm not an expert, I'm not a scholar on this movie, but from what I remember reading or seeing in the, the documentary too, I believe he was the one who came up with that nugget of an idea where he was going to adapt Heart of Darkness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to Coppola's credit or discredit, however you want to look at it, um, I think it's to his credit, he took that screenplay and he morphed it into his own vision. So he de- started to depart from that nugget of an idea and um he made it less slavish to something like an adaptation of a joseph conrad story uh and to jill to to milius's credit too i mean i don't think he was doing a straight adaptation of course not i mean you're adapting it to vietnam and of course there's going to be permutations of things but um i don't think we necessarily need to get sidetracked or like bogged down in um wow like what why did they waste time trying to adapt heart of darkness i think it's a strong enough nugget uh, acorn of an idea that's well to said. Kind yeah. of propag- propagate it, for, you know, to kind of propel it forward. And it makes for a fun comparison. And if nothing else, it lends cachet and credibility to, wow, you know, Heart of Darkness is a pretty strong work of literature. They're aspiring to some high things here. If they're trying to adapt Heart of Darkness, we're going to pay more attention. And what was interesting in watching Hearts of Darkness, the documentary, is mm-hmm. I forgot about this, but Orson Welles, you know, when he was given to the, key, the uh, keys to the kingdom by RKO, he decided to make Heart of Darkness his first motion picture. It mm. didn't work out. The studio said, no way, it's going to be too over budget. Yeah. So he made Citizen Kane instead. But just imagine, like, even going back to the late 30s, early 40s, Hollywood was trying to make Heart of Darkness. They were trying to adapt this, and it almost became like this impossible venture. Well, it's a wonderful plot. It's, it's a fabulous plot. It, it is so... You could do it today about anything. You could do it about... Mm-hmm. about uh, uh, what was his name? Guzman, the, uh, the the drug dealer. So you could have a story about a CIA agent who's or a DEA yep. agent. Uh, listen, you need to go find Guzman. He's somewhere in, in Morelos. You know, that is one of the simplest plots that you could come up with. And then sure. the place where you distinguish yourself creatively is in how you make those episodes unusual, which is what Coppola is right. doing here. He's created new stuff and it's so great. Like think how many times they're attacked from the bank. Uh, it's twice at least where <laughs> and i'm not even counting the one where they have the 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 their own version of the mylai massacre uh right. but they get attacked from the bank twice once with firefight and it is ugly and then once with arrows and that's also ugly no but if you think about it they're also attacked by a tiger when they get off the boat yes. i mean it gets more it gets more kind of primeval primordial it yes. gets more kind of you know savage and of the jungle at the deeper they get to Curtis's territory. So I want to dovetail back to this in just a bit. Jason, what's the moral to the story here? What themes or messages are explored in Apocalypse Now? I want to talk more first about what's not the moral, because I think that you probably have some wonderful things to say about, about the insanity idea of the war. But what is not the message of this movie is that war is bad. I was thinking about this a lot last night, that one thing that, that if Willard has any morality the only morality we ever see from willard is that he is a man who is going to perform his mission to the best of his ability until the end because if willard for instance were a traditional anti-hero you know willard sounds like raymond chandler he sounds like a like like a typical hard-boiled detective that's what's so beautiful about his first person narration and it, it was why mm-hmm. really scott decided to do it with in blade Runner. deckard yeah but here it sounds great and it's wonderful but there's a big difference sam spade would get an assignment like this and might not even do it if he figured it didn't suit his own personal morality. That's mm-hmm. not the case with Willard. Willard is going to get this mission. He's, he might think that it's uh, not a good mission. He might think that uh, Kurtz is insane and everybody else is insane, but he's going to do it. He's going to shoot a woman to put her out of her misery rather than uh, have her go to the hospital because he thinks it's, that's a colossal waste of time because he has a mission. He is a blunt instrument who kills for the United States government, and he has 
absolutely zero problem with any of that. There is not a moment when he indicates that he has a moral problem with anything the United States government wants to do. None. I cannot think of a single, if you can, if you can think of a single example where, where Willard indicates that morally he has a problem with something the government's doing in Vietnam, let me know. But Jason, isn't that kind of an anti-war statement in itself to, to show what uh, a man like Willard can become? Maybe. Uh, you know, it, it, it might be. If you were a special forces veteran yourself, you could very well watch this and go, well, that sort of reflects my attitude towards it, you know, or, or, or lots of people who were storming the beach at Normandy, uh, you know, is... Well, yeah, you know, uh, the Uncle Sam said, go kill that guy. And so I went to kill that guy. And now I'm back home now. Mm -hmm. I think that yeah. reflects a morality that would be very, very familiar to a lot of people of the era. But I, I'm completely at a loss as to whether the movie has anything further to say about the morality of it all. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, that, thank you for that uh, insight, because it makes me think a little bit more about it. I didn't think about an anti-theme, and you put some ideas in my head here. But I did try to answer this question the best of my ability here. And what I came up with was... I think it's obvious that we can agree to some extent, right? That one of the major messages is the capacity for man to turn to the dark side of his soul. That's, of course, a theme that resonates in the original Heart of Darkness story, uh, which this is loosely based on, as we talked about. But that's an existential tale that examines how man is capable of abandoning civilization and mm. indulging his primordial instincts and his savage nature. And here, likewise, you know, they travel up the river into increasingly dangerous jungle territory that itself represents a journey into man's inner darkness and departure for, away from reason, uh, from order, from sanity. Yeah. We see that the steadily darkening jungle is kind of a metaphor for humankind's dark side. It can unleash tigers, bullets, arrows, spears, cults, and madmen. Another thing, of course, we've already talked about it as a message, the insanity and horror of war. So Apocalypse Now gives us one example after another of how pointless and futile the Vietnam War was for Americans involved. So hear me out here. Yeah. We see, we see how innocents, like the girl on the boat scurrying to retrieve her puppy, are brutally killed. Yeah. We see how the military brass is willing to put many men's lives in danger and take priority away from other matters simply to assassinate one man who has apparently gone crazy, a man yeah. whose instincts whose instincts about killing suspected spies actually turned out to be right, but who has, you know, disobeyed orders, according to the brass. Yeah. We see how, despite being vastly outmanned and outweaponed, the native enemy on the ground is able to take out a couple of helicopters and kill and maim a few soldiers. They're not going to be uprooted. They are going to win this war. Another message, Western versus Eastern values. The characters and soldiers in Apocalypse Now are continually reminded of what they're missing back home. Things like pretty girls, rock music, partying, surfing. They don't want to be in Vietnam, and they're eager to get back home. And by contrast, the native peoples, they're embroiled in a long-running civil war, mm -hmm. and they're willing to do whatever it takes to run these invaders out of their country. So Kurtz's speech about the severed inoculated arms of children, it reinforces how determined the Vietnamese are to thwart their enemies and resist outside influences. I think that's a key message here, too. And lastly, as a theme, you could point to the masking of identities. You think about several characters who don war paint and apply yeah. camouflage color and, and are enshrouded in the shadows. And that suggests that it's maybe easier to cope with the horrors of war and their missions when hiding behind a mask. We also see, as I said, you know, Kurtz remains, uh, you know, uh, in half half darkness uh, throughout his entire little third act with only portions of his face apparent. And that maybe insinuates that he cannot truly emerge into the light and present his full identity. Of course, it was also practical reasons. Coppola was embarrassed that, you know, <laughs> that Brando was so overweight. Yeah. But he's he's journeyed figuratively too far into the darkness here. So, Jason, who do you think the film appealed to initially when it was released in 79, and who do you think it appeals to today? And if that appeal has changed, what does that say about the film's impact, influence, and legacy? And again, this is pure speculation. You don't have to have the right answer. It would be more likely at the time to appeal to an anti-war crowd. So, and that mm. and and so the traumatized folks in the post-Vietnam era, they might be very interested in it. 
you know, I remember a lot of guys in 1979, when you talk to somebody about Vietnam, that was not something that they were interested in spending two and a half hours watching the madness of which recreated. Mm. Uh, right. So I think it's an intelligentsia movie. You know, for my take on this, the answer to this question, I think that due to its graphic content, the adult themes, the reputation as an unsettling war film, it's possible that Apocalypse Now had a more limited appeal to mature adults and military veterans during its debut back in the late 70s. Yeah. I don't know this for a fact. This is, again, just pure, you know, speculation. But it did garner mixed reviews from critics at the time, which may have hurt its reputation initially. But today, it's regarded by those who've seen it and really kind of looked at it closer as a masterpiece by the vast majority of critics and fans alike. Yeah. And it's prob- probably watched by a much wider swath of the population as we- for reasons we've already talked about. Yeah. Are there any elements from this movie that have aged well versus not aged well, showing some wrinkles? Anything stand out to you, Jason? No, not at all. This actually struck me as an extremely well-made film. And, you know, I watch a lot of mid-century movies if this is a late mid-century movie, right? But, I mean, if you think of, like adventure films like the Iger Sanction, movies like that, their treatment of LGBT characters and so forth, make it very difficult to watch in a classroom setting. That's not the case here. This is, uh, you know, you got people who will be squeamish about the objectification of women or squeamish about uh, the, <laughs> the slaughter of a buffalo. But th- there's nothing where I would go, God bless, you would never have that today. To me, as a period piece portraying the Vietnam War, I think it certainly does its job in staying true to its time and place. So it's hard to identify anything that feels outdated or aged. If you're going to pull the punches on the Vietnam War and kind of lighten up on the tone of brutality and violence and, and disturbing imagery, you're not really making a movie that is true to the Vietnam War because right. everything we've heard and, and read about it, there's been so many atrocities, so many terrible injustices, all these things. So, and to your point earlier, I mean, there have been subsequent war movies, even about Vietnam, that are more brutal than Apocalypse Now. But I think it has aged wonderfully. Mm. You can make a case, perhaps, that it's too one-sided, that it doesn't show the suffering and sacrifices made by the Vietnamese people in this conflict. But this isn't Torah, Torah, Torah. It's not a back and forth trying to show the bad guys versus the good guys. That would be a very different story, of course. And I contend that it's not necessarily all about the Vietnam War. I think these truths and themes can be applied to any war. I really firmly believe it is an evergreen picture that just it doesn't show wrinkles to me. So, Jason, this is a birthday celebration, 40th anniversary of Apocalypse Now, and birthdays are all about presents, we can agree, right? But it's the fans who continue to get the gifts, I contend. So what is this movie's greatest gift to viewers, or to you, for that matter? Boy, that's a... That's a really good one. I would have to say you could strip everything else out, but I think that the performance of Marlon Brando as a sort of man who has adopted the place of a god is the piece of the culture that I think that will live more than anything else. There's there's an embarrassment of riches here, but I think that's sure. the thing that, that is most riveting is uh, is Marlon Brando's performance. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with you because uh, for all the jeers and and criticisms that the filmmakers receive for casting him and him being a prima donna, not being prepared, asking all this money and all everything, he's absolutely the spot-on right choice for Kurtz. He carries so much gravitas in that performance, and he's only on screen for maybe a collective six minutes or something ridiculous (laughs) like that. But the fact that, kind of like in Jaws, they don't reveal the shark until at least halfway through the movie or... Or it's like it, you're building up to what's going to happen when Willard confronts Kurtz. This is all building to that, and you're waiting to see. You've seen snapshots of a younger Brando as Kurtz in a dossier file or something, and you just want to see him. You want to get there. What's going to happen? And and the fact that they show you just enough. He's in the shadow most of the time, and it. I think it's the absolute right choice, and it, it's not overdone. I, I realize watching the documentary that – they had improvised a lot of these lines. They were kind of making it up as they went along. And mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a, a ragged shoddiness to that. But I don't care. I just think that last act is so important. I want to get into this in a moment. Apocalypse Now's greatest gift, to me, is its unparalleled craftsmanship. 
the attention to detail. This movie makes you feel like you're in that boat with Willard and company. You're sweating on that river. You're breathing in the secondhand smoke from the marijuana. You're inhaling that napalm gasoline smell. Of course, I've never smelled it in my life, but I could just, I could just visualize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're uh, experiencing the hair on the back of your neck standing up as you sense some unseen danger hidden in the jungle bush about to attack. I think another of its greatest gifts is its narrative structure. So for the first two acts, it is episodic, which serves, like Homer's The Odyssey, as a great sprawling journey and quest, although a dark one, right? So we come to care about the members of Willard's crew, and we're sickened to see most of them get killed off as the story progresses. And then, amazingly, once they reach Kurtz's compound, the narrative completely unravels. We're left in the dark as to how the story will conclude. And some would say that the way the movie departs that vignette formula and abandons our forward progress up the river, yeah. it forces us to sit in the dark to listen to Kurtz's not-so-insane-after-all philosophical musings and to wait patiently to learn what Willard is going to do. It, some would argue that all that muddies up the last act. But without those final scenes, Jason, without the gravitas of an enshrouded Marlon Brando confronting his assassin, the quest and the inner conflict it generates, it doesn't mean much. The journey holds the story, but the destination to me is what truly matters. Lastly, even if you don't care for this film, it's hard to deny the majesty of its visuals. Personally, I will say without equivocation, it's the greatest cinematography I have ever seen in a motion picture. Images that are carved into my consciousness that I will never unsee, nor do I want to. The natural and chiaroscuro lighting, the depth of field, the aviation photography, the smoke and fog imagery, the overall look of this picture creates an unforgettable impression. I think that was wonderful. I think that was, that was very, very well said. Do you think this movie will still be widely watched and considered relevant in another 40 years? Well, yes, this movie is going to remain an important codifier, you know, of how you do a certain kind of, you know, search movie. And I think for people who make stories, this is going to remain important. I am convinced that culture only has a lifespan of about 20 years, uh, generally, with a few rare, rare, rare exceptions. So, and that's okay, because that's how you and I can continue to reinvent things because we have longer memories than people generally. I know that's a horribly cynical way of looking at it, but you know, that's, that's where I am. I think the priests Mm. are going to continue to remember it and the parishioners are going to see it reflected in other works. Well said. Thank you. So Jason, what are you currently working on that listeners should check out? Any, uh, any books in the works recently released? How about your show itself? Uh, Castle of Horror. I, I laugh because I'm under so much pressure that it's killing me. I'm working on a book that's not going to come out until March of 2021. I, I have a, I'm in the middle of a book series for Macmillan Children's called Young Captain Nemo. The first one came out this past semester. The new one comes out in March of 2020. So the one I'm working on right now comes out in March of 2021. That's how, that's the lead time on these things. Oh, fantastic. But they're a lot of fun. And and I really love them. They're wonderful, but boy, are they hard. And every single week, we do The Castle of Horror, which is a podcast about classic horror movies with a, with a panel of writers. And we have a great time discussing it, and, and we go ridiculously deep on a th- usually you know several movies on a theme but sometimes in the summer we just cut loose and just do different stuff so our next episode is about burnt offerings actually and i'm very excited oh, to wow. discuss it yeah yeah anything you can tease us uh, in the weeks ahead uh, especially with halloween coming up any uh, particular movies you might be focusing on burnt offerings is going to be really great if you don't remember that movie and nobody nobody does uh that because that's what we do is we try to expose movies that people might not have heard of and then uh, el vampiro which is a Mexican vampire movie that is beautiful, gorgeous, 1960s, black and white, so that'll be cool. Uh, you know, we're going to do the original Friday the 13th, which came out in 1980. So, Are you going to go into deep into the series? Are you going to tackle the sequels? No, probably not. To, it, the, uh, <laughs> the, um... <laughs> There's only so much Jason you can possibly I love tackle, it, but right? we just don't have the time. I mean, you know, that, that would take... What would that take, like 13 weeks or more? And the funny thing is I have a real fondness for very bad movies with a few glimmers of, of hope because usually those are the things that you can draw inspiration from. Jason, I like that about you. That may, That's what makes you a really gracious host on your show. I have to compliment you because 
not only do you guys sometimes choose some obscure horror movies or ones that aren't as beloved, but you'll often, you know, put in a good word or two about some of these, you know, turkeys. Uh, let's be fair and honest yeah. about some of them. You always come to it with a spirit of, uh, let's give it a shot, and, and a spirit of love. So as a fellow horror movie fan, uh, that's what I really like about you and your show. Oh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, my favorite episodes, if I had to pick them, are the ones where we pick a movie that nobody thinks is good. And Yeah, one of my favorites, by yeah. the way, was Halloween Halloween 3, which I still say to this day is one of my favorite guilty pleasures. For sure. I was so happy you guys finally tackled that one, and it was a lot of fun listening to it. Yeah, if I had to throw out one that people could listen to that would be funny, Embrace of the Vampire, which is a terrible vampire movie with, uh, wow. with uh, one of the members of Spandau Ballet and uh, <laughs> Alyssa uh, Milano. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks again for, uh, yeah, for appearing on Cineversary. We really appreciate your time and expertise, and we will continue to uh, give a listen to Castle of Horror. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Well, that was fun. Thanks again to Jason Henderson for appearing on Cineversary. Time now for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a movie, book, website, TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. So my standing ovation for August is actually an old-time radio audio dramatization of the story that Coppola and crew based Apocalypse Now upon, Heart of Darkness, as originally broadcast on the Mercury Theater on the Air on November 6, 1938, directed by and starring Orson Welles. Interestingly, Wells sought to adapt Heart of Darkness for his film directorial debut, but created Citizen Kane instead after it was determined that Heart of Darkness would be too difficult to bring to screen. This bit of fascinating trivia is explored in the Hearts of Darkness documentary we talked about earlier, which is also well worth your time. You can stream or download the 1938 radio dramatization by visiting tinyurl.com slash heartofdarkness2019. All right, before we wrap up, we could use your help. We're trying to expand our audience and would greatly appreciate it if you could spread the good word about this podcast to your friends and fam. Here's an even bigger favor you can do for us. We'd be forever grateful if you could leave us a positive review on whatever platform you hear it from. That helps this show get discovered by new listeners. Thanks so much if you can do that. Eager to nominate a movie with an upcoming anniversary date that you'd like us to shine the spotlight on in a future episode? Do you have a burning question for me? Or maybe you just want to offer some suggestions or comments? Well, I'll tell you what, you can get a hold of me, Eric Martin, at cineversegroup at gmail.com. I also recommend that you visit cineversegroup.com, which is the portal for my Cineverse film discussion group I launched 14 years ago and which continues to meet weekly in the south suburban Chicago area. Cineverse is a democratic film society that watches and then discusses a predetermined movie that our members pick on a rotating basis. At cinevercegroup.com, and in case you're curious, that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions, read more about the films we study, and a lot more. I founded Cineverse and launched this podcast to foster an appreciation for an intelligent dialogue about memorable films. My credo is, hey, watching movies is fun, yes, but talking about them, that's equally enjoyable. Few things in life to me are as satisfying as digging deeper to learn why and how a picture was made, the impact it's had on culture, society, and other movies, why that film has the power to evoke a strong emotional reaction in each of us, and what it can teach us today. All right, you've stuck with us this far, which tells me you're dying to know what's coming up next month. Well, here you go. In September, we'll get corny, Capricorny, by commemorating the 80th anniversary of Frank Capra's 1939 standout, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, starring James Stewart. I hope you can join us. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, folks. They're just getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen. 